This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek graphic novels collection. Get your first volume, Countdown, for only $4.95 when you sign up today at eaglemoss.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 234, Lessons. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, studying it for messages, morals, and meanings, and determining whether the episode stands the test of time. This week, Lessons, the one where Picard learns the intricacies of duets, if you know what I mean. We get all sorts of excitement ahead, plus trivia... But first, a word about the official Star Trek graphic novels collection uh, from our friends at Eagle Moss. You like how you did that? I like how you did that. Do you like that? It went unnoticed. Yeah, I didn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't think you would like that at all. Yeah. Uh, For the first time ever, uh, the best of fifty years of Star Trek comics have been brought together in this uh, in this extraordinary collection. Here's what's really neat. So, Mm -hmm. so uh, people may have picked up. You and I have a few of these, but we don't have the whole collection. Sure. Right. What, what's really neat is they so they sent us a picture of what the whole collection looks like. Yeah, it's 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 like a it's like a what's what's the word I'm looking for? Not a fresco. It's like a mural. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. if you put all the books together, there's this giant space scene that you will only get by having all of the books together. It's kind of like back when you used to buy bubblegum cards and you had the card, but then on the back was the puzzle and you got to put it all together. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like that, except there's a lot more here than just, you know, crappy gum that'll break your teeth. (laughs) So they are beautifully presented in brand new hardbound editions with specially commissioned introductions, series features stories written by some of the most beloved writers in Star Trek history. And uh, that includes not just the writers you know, like DC Fontana, but uh, some of the actors who were in the shows, like Mark Leonard and Aaron Eisenberg and Will Wheaton, um, and the novelists like Peter David, Michael Jan Friedman, Alan Dean Foster, Diane Duane. People have written for the movies, whether you like those or not, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, people, basically it's going really deep, not just in the artists, but in the writers, and of course all the different uh, publishers that have actually carried it as well. What's interesting, actually, is to see the different styles of all the different publishers, which is Probably partly the different styles of the different publishers, but also just the different styles of the times, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, like we said, it's 50 years of comics. And and if you've read any old Marvel, you know Iron Man back in the day is nothing like Iron Man today. <laughs> Very true. And, uh, and, and same goes for, for all your Star Trek favorites as well. We've also talked about uh, the, the extra things that you get for sticking around. Oh, no, you don't just get the book spine mural. There's a ton of stuff like uh, like these really cool bookends that they have, and these really neat sort of like uh, like like little movie posters that come in a tin, mm-hmm. and you know everybody knows the best way to keep your movie poster. It, it locks in the freshness. The tin does. <laughs> right. So I mean, there's a, there's like a ton of really great stuff here. Great stories, great books, and great extras too. And, and since we're talking about kind of the the odd things, which I, I really love that you, you get the the collectibles you didn't even know were kind of hard to find yet. You know, so we mentioned all the publishers: Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Paramount Comics, uh, Wildstorm, Tokyo Pop, IDW, and we've mentioned before those British comic strips, right? So those are the hardest mm-hmm. to get. If you think about it, they ran in periodicals and they. 
they they kind of got scattered to the winds you know they they ran for about four years in england and it wasn't like you just went down and, and you bought an issue of the star trek comic book no they, they were strips that ran in a bunch of different places and they actually started running them before the show aired in the uk so a lot of the stuff in these comic strips just completely wrong just completely made up and it's a lot of fun <laughs> to see those little details that they just didn't get right so, of course, the way to see the collection is to start your collection. And we suggest you do that with Volume 1 Countdown for only $4.95. Uh, this is the one, a lot of people remember this. I think it was originally published as an app, if memory mm. serves, or at least there was an app that went along with it. Um, but it's the stuff that leads up to 2009's uh, Star Trek movie, uh, leads up to the Kelvin timeline, yeah, reintroduces us to Spock, uh, and, of course, introduces for the first time De Niro, and then and then kicks us off on a whole new set of adventures uh, in the Kelvin universe. And bonus content includes the first Gold Key Star Trek comic book from 1967. Uh, other editions do come twice monthly, and they're delivered right to you. And uh, you may cancel your collection, or your subscription, rather. Or both, I guess, uh, at any time. For details on the entire collection, including a host of those exclusive free gifts that Ken just talked about, and to order, visit eaglemoss.com slash missionlog. That address again is eaglemoss.com slash mission log. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. Their stuff is so cool. Yeah. No lie. <laughs> I mean, their no stuff lie. is so cool. It's yeah. like, yeah, I'm really happy that they are. I'm really happy that they're happy with us. So, mm-hmm. yay. All right. <laughs> uh, if, if you're happy with us or, hey, if you're not, if you just got something you want to share, something to get off your chest. Direct those to Ken. Uh, Mission Log Pod <laughs> is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Lots of fun and excitement coming up. But first... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're doing <laughs> that. Sorry. We're doing the same joke. Twice in uh-huh. one show. That's yeah. terrible. Okay. It's twice in one show. Uh, but first, the most fun and excitement. Uh, okay. There you go. John Champion's trivia. All right. Trivia for today's episode, Lessons. It was written by Ron Wilkerson and Jean-Louise Mathias. Now, we've talked about them before. They both got the story credit on Imaginary Friend and Schism. Schism! Schism! But this is the first time this is the first time they get the teleplay credit as well. So they actually scripted this one as well. Now, they will be back for one more on Next Generation. And then later, as a team, jump over to Voyager for a handful of episodes there. Now, uh, Rene Echeverria came in to do some rewrites. He did not get on-screen credit for that. Interesting to note that Brennan Braga was offered that job, but he wasn't interested since he had just done some rewrites on Aquiel and wanted to stay away from crew romance stories for a little while. This episode was directed by Robert Weimer. Now, we first saw him on Next Gen with Who Watches the Watchers, and the most recent of his credits that we talked about was Schisms. Schisms! <laughs> and uh, we have the return of the Resican flute prop, which, uh, like last time, is not a flute, but rather a penny whistle. And no, Patrick Stewart is not actually playing the pieces you hear in the show. 
And actually, for some of those shots, you had the real musicians just out of camera range, but playing live while the actors mimed the movements. And it's a pretty good way to keep the spontaneous feel of the actions, and it saves you some time in post-productions for music sync. Uh, but let's take in just how complex this is. So you've got your multiple camera shots set up. You had Bryce Martin, who played the flute starting in the inner light. But you also had a photo double for seeing Picard's hands do the movements on the prop, though sometimes, yes, that is Patrick Stewart, uh, his hands anyway. And then Bryce's wife, uh, Natalie Martin, was brought in for the piano parts for Nella. So it's this whole coordination thing where you have hand doubles, you have the actors, and you have musicians playing off camera. It can get very complicated, but it actually works pretty well here. Now, those storm effects are uh, by old standbys Dan Curry and Ronald B. Moore. It was a really inexpensive practical effect. Liquid nitrogen was poured onto black velvet, and then the wisps of steam coming from that were pushed around with an air hose. This was enhanced and inserted into the planet shots digitally. And we have one very special guest star, Wendy Hughes, as Lieutenant Commander Nella Darren. Wendy was born in Australia, and most of her work was there, but she easily found roles in the U.S. as well, on TV and film. She had a major recurring role on the Australian series Snowy River, The McGregor Saga, based on The Man from Snowy River, and stateside she appeared in Homicide, Life on the Street, and in America, that's America with a K, that sort of alternative history drama in which the Soviet Union had conquered the U.S., and she made multiple appearances on Homicide. No, 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 not the one you're thinking of, but the Australian one from the late 60s. She also appeared as Janet Lee Bouvier in the miniseries A Woman Named Jackie. Now, she was nominated for seven Australian Film Institute Awards and won one of those, and that's just a sample of the other accolades she received. Now, sadly, she passed away in 2014 at the age of 61. Exterior, 3 a.m., no one can breathe. Maybe we should go inside the ship instead. Prologue. Late at night or super early in the morning, on the Enterprise and barely anyone is stirring except Data, who's watching the bridge. Captain Picard can't sleep, figures he'll get a little work done, but nothing is working. Systems are offline and it's all because of some experiment going on in stellar cartography. Away the captain goes to see what's happening. New set alert! He walks into a darkened room where there's a very intense experiment happening, and his interruption costs them a lot of work. They'll have to start over. And everyone's a little embarrassed that the captain messed things up, especially Lieutenant Commander Darren. She's tough, but sincere, and ribs Picard, good-naturedly, of course, about his caffeine addiction. She replicates a cup of herbal tea for him, disgusting at first sip to Picard, and then explains the nature of her work. She's new to the Enterprise and working on mathematical models that can predict the shape of star systems emerging two million years in the future. Fascinating stuff. Picard seems definitely interested in something. Act 1. Is it everyone else, or does the captain have a little bit of a string in his step? He's smiling? He's talking about the Bergolas Nebula, where they're headed, and how stellar cartography will get to study it? He even seems excited about Data playing in a concert of Chopin later that night. Over dinner with Dr. Crusher, Picard is excitedly talking about mapping future star systems, and he's asking if Beverly has met any of the new crew members. Who's that? Oh, someone new in stellar cartography? Name of 
Nella Darren? Picard washes down his subtle interest with a swig of herbal tea that he suddenly seems to have developed a taste for. At the concert later, well, guess who's on the piano? None other than Lieutenant Commander Darren. And she's good. Really good. So good that Picard can't help but gushing about her style after the show. And his gushing has sparked her interest. A captain and a musician? They'll have to get together and play sometime. Music. Play music. Act 2. Lieutenant Commander Darren pops up on the bridge like it isn't even a thing, and she asks Riker directly for use of the main sensor array. He can't write now, but she fights for it a little, and he relents, saying she'll get more time tomorrow. Then, like it still isn't even a thing, Lieutenant Commander Darren pops over to Captain Picard's personal quarters, where he's grooving to a little Bach. She notices that he owns a flute, which he says is Reskin, and she tries to give it a go. It's not really her instrument, and Picard shows her how it's done. He plays a simple, slow melody, and she's so inspired to create some music with him that she unrolls the portable piano she happens to be carrying with her. They start in, Picard a bit reluctantly, with Bach's third Brandenburg concerto, and it's not perfect. Making music with someone else really isn't Picard's thing, since he's only been playing with a computer until now, she suggests something easier, and, much to the captain's delight, starts plinking out Frère Jacques. He joins in, then they improvise, and they get more comfortable with each other. The captain is really rocking out with a Jacques out, and she loves it. The next morning, Picard is all smiles again, even asking Riker to join in with a little fencing that afternoon. Nella, meanwhile, is being treated by Dr. Crusher for a strain in her arm, it's the perfect opportunity to ask about Picard and how well Beverly knows him. With her arm feeling better, the lieutenant says she'll be off to practice another duet with Picard, definitely not getting Jacques blocked by the doctor. Somewhere deep in the recesses of the Enterprise, Nella has found the perfect spot among the maze of Jeffrey's tubes. It is, according to her, acoustically perfect, and she begins to play her piano again. With his flute, Picard plays the tune he learned while living on Catan, and Nella is delighted at the emotion of the piece. She joins in on piano, and soon their music is wafting into main engineering. Geordi sets off to find out where it's coming from, but just then it stops, because Picard and Nella have put down their instruments in order to share a kiss. Act 3. Unless you think it's all romance on board, remember the universe is big enough to contain all kinds of B-plots. A call comes in from a Federation outpost on Bersalix 3, where there's an early appearance of firestorms. Something cool to check out. While they change course, Picard asks to see Deanna Troy, privately. He's got something on his mind. You know, hypothetically, what would happen if a starship captain dated a member of his crew? And Deanna's like, oh, you mean hypothetically if you were dating Lieutenant Commander Darren? Yeah, everyone already knows. And everyone is cool with it, so relax. Picard visits Nella, and he's apologetic about being so cold when they were in the company of others. Like earlier, they were in a turbo lift and a crew member walked in that made Picard suddenly stiffen up. He won't do it again. Later that night, Picard recounts the story about how he got that Reskin flute and how he learned that tune. The probe, the lifetime on Catan, the wife, the kids, everything. She's touched, not only by the story, but by the intense emotion that the music from that experience gave him and why he's sharing it with her. The next day, 
Karen sees Riker and requests a personnel change. She kind of overstepped her bounds, though, by talking to that crew member first, and it puts Riker in a tricky situation. He's put off by it enough to visit Picard and air his grievance. Could it be, perhaps, that Darren's relationship with Picard is going to her head? That she feels like she can sidestep protocol? Picard tells Riker that he's in charge, he trusts his judgment. That night over dinner, Picard and Nella talk it over. She knows she shouldn't ask for special favors, and honestly, she wasn't. It's just that it might have looked like that. She doesn't like the position that puts her in, but Picard assures her that they are both professionals and will forget the whole matter. Before dessert can be served, a follow-up call comes in from Bersalis Three. It's not just that the firestorms are early this year, they're intense and deadly. The people at the Federation outpost are requesting evacuation. Act 4. That storm is very hot and very windy. Literally can wipe out the outpost and all the people with it. With the Enterprise arriving about an hour before the storm hits, it'll take about two hours to get everyone out of there. Lieutenant Commander Darren has an idea, though. They could use thermal deflectors to shield everyone from the storm for long enough to evacuate. Good idea, but it'll take six teams of two each to lay out enough deflectors and link them up. It's very risky, but it's the best plan they've got. And the person to lead that team is Nella Darren. Riker chose her because it was her idea and she's the best candidate. After the senior staff meeting, though, Picard asks her to stay behind and expresses his concern. It's work, though. She has to do it. It all has to happen in a hurry, and with obvious resignation in the command, Picard sends the away team, led by Darren, down to Brasalis Three. Act 5. Conditions on the planet are rough, to say the least. The evacuation is happening, but things are slow with the atmospheric ionization creating havoc with the transporter. Darren's deflectors are in place, but the storm is so intense that she and her teams will need to stay with them and calibrate manually while the rest of the colonists are beamed to safety. They're running out of time. The storm will be right on top of them in four minutes, but it'll take another ten to get everyone out. With little promise that the away team will survive, Picard gives the order that they should hold their positions until the last of the colonists is aboard the Enterprise. Some time later, the colonists are all aboard, and Riker reports that he and the away team were able to just escape as well, but there was so much interference that two of the teams didn't make it back. Team 3 and Team 6 are unaccounted for, and Lieutenant Commander Darren was on Team 6. Hearing this news, Picard retreats to his quarters. He puts away the rest and flute, and just then Worf calls to let him know that survivors have been found, among them Lieutenant Commander Darren. In the aftermath, the colonists were saved, but eight crew members died in the line of duty. Picard, of course, is relieved to see Darren, but he's clearly disturbed by the fact that he gave the order that could have killed her. She explains that they were able to modify phasers to create a temporary safe area within the disruptions. One person on her team didn't make it, and she could only watch helplessly. Picard's consolation is halted by Darren admitting that at least a small part of her blamed him for potentially sending her to her death. She also thought for a moment that he would blame himself if she died. Picard has lost people before, but never anyone he's been in love with. This arrangement won't work. If Darren stays, there could be another chance that her life would be in jeopardy. Picard says she could resign her commission, and Darren says he could resign his. Neither of them want that. Darren will put in for a transfer, 
And even though this is goodbye, they could still see each other from time to time, maybe shore leave somewhere. One final kiss, and Darren tells Picard to never give up his music. The end. Everything Picard wants and wants to do is being consumed by stellar cartography when this show begins. Mm-hmm. He can't do anything because of what's in stellar... Can't make a cup of tea. Because, yeah. of, what's, because of what's in stellar cartography. Yeah. That is just such a, a wonderful way to start a love story. That is just, I mean, that's just so fantastic. That's just like a, yeah. you know, just like I, because he is soon not going to be able to do anything because of something else that's in stellar cartography. But I love the fact that, you know, it's, it, it's a good way to start a love story, it I would is. say. It's, yeah. it's kind of perfect. The, the accidental meeting. I like it. Um, it, we mentioned the callback to the Reskin flute. There's, there's another thing, though, that, that's sort of, uh, well, an unintended callback here to uh, to Tapestry. So in the early part of the episode in, in Tapestry, we saw Picard haunted by the voices of crew members that he had sent to their deaths earlier by his action or inaction. Right. We haven't really seen Picard faced with that before directly. People have died under his command. But in that episode in Tapestry, it was sort of this torture of of remembering that that had happened. And we actually see that play out here with just the idea of giving the command. I love that moment when he's on the bridge listening to that crosstalk and and sort of contemplating what has to be done and what is happening down there. It was a, it was a nice moment. I would argue we have seen it before, though. I mean, we saw Tasha Yar by it in season one. And we saw Marla Astor as well. Yeah, well... I, we didn't see her die, but, I mean, we saw we saw the results of, of that happening. Right, right? But, but did we really see Picard deal with the... I mean, the, the Marla Astor story, that was really all about the boy, you know? But we, we didn't see Picard have to deal with, like, oh, wait, I gave a command that made this happen, you know? Yeah. Wait, a nice little shout-out to Wesley. I'm glad he's alive. Um, I, I hope he's not fallen in with another bad crowd at school, you know? What's weird to me about the whole Wesley thing, um, well, not Wesley, but the whole Crusher thing, uh, Picard is aware enough of what's going on between him and Beverly, mm-hmm. which I, I think they sort of address that. What was the episode where they landed on the planet that had been destroyed because they sold arms and, like, it had basically killed everybody that was there, we think, and it certainly was killing... Yeah, Arsenal of Freedom. Arsenal of Freedom. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, yeah, when when it looked like Beverly was about to buy it there, yeah, she started to tell Picard something. And then we've pretty much not addressed anything like a relationship between <laughs> them until this episode. I mean, th- we know they have breakfast together from time to time, but, you know, they're not wearing the same clothes they were wearing the night before. I mean, they literally meet for breakfast before work. Yeah. This episode really seems to be the first time since that first season where they've actually acknowledge that there might be something and it's it's not so subtle when beverly does it because she's obviously jealous when the woman who looks almost exactly like her is dating the captain yeah yeah right but but like when they're at breakfast or no at dinner before the concert and beverly is like oh this tea is good what is it and picard's like uh i i found it in the replicator I definitely did not get this recipe from a woman that I'm interested in. Oh, speaking of women, have you met the woman I'm interested in? Yeah, it's clever. It was interesting to see. I, I really do think this is like our, our first or second mention of the possibility of an episode of a, of a excuse me of a relationship between the two of them. So there, there's so much in this that I like, but there's a moment that just ah uh, oh it I I just don't like it. Um, Picard noticing the F minor chord instead of the diminished D. 
and that it's so it's like when the writing for James Bond started to get really sloppy and then suddenly he was just an expert on everything all the time. Like it didn't matter at all. It's like, oh, you're an expert on gold. Oh, and you're an expert on this bad brandy and you're an expert on this. just, okay, we know he's cool. We know he's good. But this is just sort of the writer cramming it down your throat how good this guy is, you know? See, that's, that's interesting because I thought he was just showing off. I mean, not showing off exactly, but trying to be like, you know, down with her. Mm-hmm. It's like a thing that he happens to know. And so he's going to be like, oh, I, I, I totally know about that thing you like because I like I mean, I like that thing as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. And, and of course he likes that thing. But, oh, it's so. Oh, <laughs> yeah. See, I thought it was a painful, I mean, painful in a way, but like more like in um, The Age of Innocence, which I know I've talked about more than once on this show. It's one of my favorite novels, and I really like the movie, too. Mm-hmm. There's like this thing where the Countess Olenska wants to, you know, meet an artist, and uh, the the main protagonist dude is like, oh, I know a bunch of artists I can introduce you to, and it turns out it was a different artist, and it becomes sort of an embarrassing moment, mm-hmm. but it's like this, he's almost he's almost like a little kid, like, you know, oh, 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 I know about that, let me tell you, let me tell you, you know, kind of thing, which is sort of what I got off the Picard thing as well. Yeah. Hey, I have I have a question. Yeah. Um, when when they're you know playing in his quarters, mm-hmm. and they're playing uh, music in his quarters, by the way. Oh yeah, right. Nice, nice, nice job on that. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, and they're playing Frère Jacques, and mm-hmm. she says, um, "Well, now let's have a little fun." And I got to say, speaking as a non musician, impossible. <laughs> Frère Jacques is not where you like really tear it up. I think. Yeah. No, they they had the most fun you can have with Frère Jacques, and that is precisely none. That is, yeah. yeah. Well, they had fun, but I think they might have been thinking about stuff besides the music. That's true. So maybe, true. like, maybe they actually could have Frère Jacques. Maybe there is, like, maybe there are two, like, um, times that you can have fun with that. When you're five and you speak English and you think you're learning to speak French by singing that song, yeah. that's one. And then when you're in love with the person that you're playing the music with, that's two. Right. Otherwise, yeah. Uh, by the way, there was a, a, a group in France, I want to say in the 60s, maybe late 50s, called the Frère Jacques. And really? They're, they're, yeah, and they're kind of hilarious. And they did some of Serge Gainsbourg's uh, early stuff. And um, they're awesome. They're the most fun you can have as the Frère Jacques. I don't think they ever recorded Frère Jacques. <laughs> so they knew what was up. Yeah. <sighs> You you sound like some guy who has just noticed the F minor chord instead of the diminished D. Oh, but but look them up; they're really fun. Okay, um, and look, and if that's not enough fun for you, uh, Nella's Nella's got a space piano. Yeah, she does. Uh-huh. She does with the uh, complete with like sort of the Casio drum pad along the side. I love that. I'm really kind of sorry she didn't bust that out. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> that would have been that would have been kind of cool. So listen, I've practically flipped a coin on this part. I'm going to go ahead and spill. I'm going to go ahead and spoil. Okay. I I love this episode. Okay. Okay. Oh. And 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 I say that because now I have to bring up one thing about the episode. That I just that that really got to me, okay. and it's and and I'm bothered by how much this actually got to me. Okay. Yes. When they go to the most acoustically perfect spot on the Enterprise, mm-hmm. the Jeffries tube behind her is a picture of a Jeffries tube. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh no, I'm not looking for clarification yeah. or confirmation on that. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. My dog. Who I don't think, what's the animal that can't see in three dimensions? I know dogs can see in three dimensions. What animal can't? 
Well, it doesn't matter. If you can't see in three dimensions, you still know that this is just a flat representation of a Jeffrey's tube. Reminding me of like when you go to like a sad mall where stores are starting to close down, you know, <laughs> but they put up like a picture of a store yeah. instead. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, I can't buy anything in there because it's just a picture of a store and you're not fooling anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking, well, this really can't be the perfect acoustical place because there's just like a like a flat surface against which they're going to be playing music at this point. Yeah. Because uh, that's just a picture of a Jeffrey's tube. And and what's crazy is, like, this is a well-produced episode. This is a well-put-together episode, I think. I'm very sorry that that bothered me as much as it did. But I'm pretty sure I could get, like, a cardboard standee of a Jeffrey's tube to put up on my wall on eBay. It wouldn't make it one. <laughs> that's very true. So they only used that a couple of times before. And it's two times too many. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, obviously, there there might have been some challenges to shoot in there to get the angles that they needed. And again, sure. you got to hide musicians and all this stuff. But yeah, it, it's a little right. It's just a little obvious, and by a little, I mean a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, like like very obvious. Like we could have actually started the recap, the one with the silly, silly picture mm-hmm. of the Jeffrey suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think so anyway, but we can come back to that part later. Right. Um, it's a good thing that hopefully everybody who's watching this episode uh, has seen the inner light and really Picard mm-hmm. should have sat down Nella and had her watch the inner light. Because, I mean, hearing that story for the first time, if you really were Nella Darren and you sat down with this guy and he's like, let me tell you how I know how to play the flute. It's not like I went to lessons from the time that I was six years old and then I learned this tune and my, my mom taught this to me. No, no, no. It's... um. I was visited by a space probe that gave me the memories of a long dead civilization. I had children there. I had a wife and then I became an old man. And then I was sent back to the enterprise. You would think that you were talking to a crazy person. <laughs> you, yeah, you would absolutely now that that moment is delivered really beautifully, but in any other context, you would just be staring at this man telling a story and thinking that he was off his meds. I will tell you, I have tried this line in bars. Didn't work? It doesn't work. No. Oh. Yeah, man. no, it, do- it just doesn't work. So uh, you have to be a certain kind of, you have to be captain of a starship, I think. Okay. I guess so. For it to really work for you. So Troy and Picard talking over Darren, it's a wonderful, it's it, it's a nice scene. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the best scene ever. It's not the worst scene ever. But it just, it struck me as kind of odd because, you know, Troy, yeah, Picard starts talking about the hypothetical thing that you're talking about. And Troy says, you would like my opinion about you and Commander Darren. Mm-hmm. And Picard says, is it that obvious? And I wanted Troy to say, well, yeah, you know, I'm an empath. And my abilities work like 68% of the time. So, yeah, I'm picking up on this one. Yeah. It struck me as really weird that he's like, oh, does it show? And she's like, well, I know what color underwear you wore this morning because I can read your mind, kind of. They, they work 68% of the time, the 90% of the time that she's around. <laughs> that's, that's true. What's, was it Sex Panther? 63% of the time it works every time. That's sort of right, like Troy. Right. Yeah, it's sort of like, uh, like Troy's yep, abilities. Yep. Um, it, we've talked about uh, Star Trek's short-term memory problems, but it, it is really good to see the Reskin flute here make an important return appearance. Like th- There are little things you can point to where you just think, like, oh, well, the, the prop master just threw this in. Like, every time we go to Worf's quarters, you're like, oh, there's a weapon from that episode, and there's his ball chair again, and there's that. But it, it was nice to see a a simple object have a really deep emotional impact on a story that could have played out very poorly, but it really works here. 
Yeah. It's really nicely done. Every now and then, though, I do wonder when Picard is finally going to kill himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just go through, like, all the terrible stuff that happened. Yeah, right? And all the terrible stuff that keeps Mm -hmm. happening. And it's just like, wow, this guy... Yeah. It's not an easy road to hoe for Captain Picard. I told you about this nice story about me living on this planet. Um, Now let me tell you about having all the voices of the Borg in my head all the time (laughs) for that horrible moment (laughs) where I gave up Starfleet secret and allowed them to destroy so many ships. That was me. That was me. My bad. Not even that. Just at the very end. Oh, wow. So you lived like on this whole planet. Well, how how did that whole thing end? Oh, funny story. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I sat there while the sun enveloped it and everybody died. Yeah. Yeah. Let's play. Wait a minute. You are saying that that was only a picture of a Jeffrey's tube? This episode may now be ruined for me. So this is hardly the point of this episode. This is nothing like the point of this episode, but this is something that occurred to me. Okay? Okay. Did the people of Catan, or Catan, Catan, I guess we decided, uh, Mm. screw up by giving their planet's history to Picard? Hmm. Because they wanted to make sure that they were remembered, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They wanted to make sure that people knew. So they gave a lifetime of experience, of history, of achievement right. to a guy that bottles everything that happens to him. <laughs> <laughs> like, and stuffs it way down in a ball deep down in his gut, right? And doesn't tell anybody. Oh, yeah. um, like, shouldn't he have like quit Starfleet and started a lecture circuit all about the people of Catan, right? Yeah. About their music and about their culture. Because it is something that they wanted to share. They wanted to be sure that people knew that they were there, that people remembered who they were. And it's something that he's like, two seasons later, he falls in love with somebody and he's like, I can, I can only really tell you. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And Riker. That's, <laughs> and that's, that's a good point. You know, if, um, yeah, if somebody asks him about it, like, let's say hopefully he filed a report. Uh, of some sort yeah, uh, about true. that experience but maybe it's only a couple of paragraphs long like uh went to planet uh re-met my wife had kids uh sun goes supernova bye and then somebody asked him about this like well what what were the people like what, what was it well well I I, I I don't like to talk about it it's very personal yeah uh, i got this flute i got this flute <laughs> Right. Oh, well, can you play it for me? I, I don't like to play it for people. It's very <laughs> right. Yeah, this instrument that nobody has heard except for you. Because, yeah, well, you know, it's really, I like to keep it in the box. <laughs> yeah. With my feelings. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And you would think that for a guy who's sort of intrigued by history and archaeology and artifacts, that that would be. Yeah. Well, the show would have taken a very different turn had he quit. And gone on the lecture circuit. Maybe. Well, <laughs> be, you know. And the question is then, do we stay on the Enterprise or do we follow him? Right. Yeah. The thrilling adventures of Captain Picard writing a book about his right. Right. time right. among the Ressicans. Yeah. Jean-Luc Picard, lecturer. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then we're watching it, but it's the same lecture every week because really just the one thing happened to him. Like every season, he rewrites the lecture a tiny bit. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, yeah. wow, 26 episodes of this. How many seasons did we sign on for? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So, yeah. All right. So this episode isn't really about that. Um, this <laughs> is, you know, I'll, I'll just assume that uh, that's maybe not the whole point. Uh, but it is an episode about navigating an office romance. And, and I'm not sure it comes down too heavily one way or the other. It's interesting to me that it shows an enlightened 24th 
century view that what people do in their personal lives is up to them. There is no policy in place dictating what crew members can do. We've seen that before, this weird kind of nebulous relationship between Picard, I'm sorry, uh, between Riker and Deanna. And as you mentioned before, this flirtation that uh, Picard has with Beverly and you know, we, we've seen women come and go from the ship and men come and go from the ship. And, and it's really not a it's not a not a thing at the end of the day you don't go into the next episode. And then there's somebody complaining about the person who left them or, or you know, that they left in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's interesting about this episode is that it also concedes that there are consequences to whatever those people decide to do. So. I, I, I like the way that Picard's romance is handled by the other crew members. Mm-hmm. I like that he kind of struggles with it a little bit, and she does too. Um, and I like that he reminds Deanna, and thereby reminding us that there are no official policies that he has to follow. But there are still consequences that affect him based on his position. Um, and they, you know, fortunately, they get to work it out in a sort of adult and level-headed way. Now, we had an interesting comment on Twitter uh, asking if Nella was too much like Beverly and and thus creating our own Mandela effect. Did, did, you, did you see that? I did, except I, I apologize. I should have looked it up. I don't actually know what a Mandela effect is. Oh, okay. So uh, here, I'll give you a, a quick rundown because th- this has been online pretty re- recently that people insist that they remember a movie uh, called uh, Shazam, starring uh, Sinbad, and um, and they remember the box cover, and they remember renting it, and they remember watching it, they remember everything about it, except it never happened. It does not exist. It's not a thing. Hmm. So uh, it, here we have this character who is so much like Beverly, and she's in one episode and then gone, and we never see her again. I'm assuming I haven't watched ahead. Um, <laughs> that, that it's sort of like, Hey, you remember that, uh, that really, you know, strong headed, intelligent, uh, great woman that you dated, you know, Beverly. Oh yeah. The, the one with the red hair, like, Oh yeah. It was, and she was really, she was like the head of a department. Yeah. Beverly Crusher. Like, no, Oh no, no. It was another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, that's really, that's actually, that's really interesting. Okay. There are like three things in what you just said I want to hit. Okay. And first I'll tell you a story that has, that I forgot about actually until this episode. Okay. Freshman year. I'm an art major. There's a girl that I'm like totally into. Mm -hmm. Uh, She completely, well, now we would call it friend zone, but you know, back at the time Mm -hmm. I was just too good a friend, blah, 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 whatever. And you know, maybe for some other reason she didn't like me. I don't know, whatever. But then like I went away. Not not like in shame or anything. I just <laughs> moved someplace else and went to a different school. And then I think it was my sophomore year, I came back, and she's dating an art major, which I was at the time, uh, named Ken. Hmm. Huh. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, now maybe neither of them existed. So maybe yeah, I've right. got my own Mandela effect going. I'm not sure. I mean, what, what I find interesting actually is... I mean, this, again, is part of the acknowledgement that that Crusher has a thing for Picard. Yeah. And she doesn't say anything about it, but it's very obvious. She's playing it as a woman who's like, I mean, not ridiculously jealous, but just sort of like, hey, you're, well, okay, a bit like me and dating him. And that's kind of working. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sort of like introduces that idea. I mean, it didn't bother me at all that they were so much alike. I thought it was kind of funny that they were so much alike because... 
even if it doesn't wake Picard up to, you know, Beverly's situation, it wakes Beverly up to Beverly's situation, mm, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, I do have to, I, I, I sort of have to take issue with something that you said in the recap. Okay, what's that? Well, you said that you felt like, or that she felt like, or that Riker felt like, Darren was sort of taking advantage of her position as the captain's girlfriend mm-hmm. and asking for things. Mm-hmm. And Picard actually asked Riker point blank if he felt like she was doing that. And Riker said no. Mm-hmm. And she also said later that she didn't feel like she was doing that. I mean, everybody sort of agreed that she was doing what the head of a department would do, fighting for as much as she can get. Riker was uncomfortable with it because Riker, you know, I mean, she is still the captain's girlfriend, but he did actually the best thing they could possibly do. He he went to the captain and said, so listen, this is happening. And then Picard did the absolute best thing he could do. He's like, you know, she's doing her job. You do your job. Two of you work it out because what happens when I'm not sitting in the big chair is nobody's business. That doesn't affect what's actually going on. Now, of course, it actually does affect what's going on, but it shouldn't as far as as far as Riker's allocation of resources. And he makes he makes that clear. Yeah, remember, you know, she she sidesteps protocol and they, they tease that earlier with her being on the bridge. I mean, who else is ever on the bridge? No, nobody can come on the bridge, you know, so they, they kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they tease that earlier and then Riker walks in. He's he's on a huff and he goes into Picard's uh, ready room. And and before Riker can even get the full sentence out of his mouth, Picard asks, you know, Oh, and you think this is related to my relationship with her? You think this is because of, you know, her, her proximity to me? And he's like, oh, yeah. Well, no, forgive me. I don't think that's how it went. Riker said that he was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And Picard said, because of her relationship with me. Because the, the thing that turned Picard on about her, it seemed to me, the very first thing, was not the fact that she looks like Beverly, but the fact that she was like... <laughs> You're drinking caffeinated tea at three in the morning. Of course, she can't sleep. Here, drink this. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. She 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 did not defer to him, <laughs> right? <laughs> Pretty much at all. She like she had her own ideas, and she came to him with her own ideas. And yes, she was a little worried for a moment that she had told off the captain. But then, well, he's just a guy, and he's actually it's three in the morning, and oh, you can't sleep. Well, it's because you're a dope and you're drinking coffee. Here, drink this instead. Not coffee, obviously. It was tea. Earl Grey. Hot. Hot. Yeah. I understand that. But <laughs> I didn't feel like she was, I mean, she was a bit more forthright than she might normally be, but I didn't feel like she was sidestepping anybody. She was maybe a little bit more, well, as I say, maybe a bit more forthright than other mm-hmm. people are. But when asked point blank by Picard, is she doing anything that she shouldn't be doing as the head of a department, Riker's like, no, she's not. It's just that he, I mean, he, for the first time, has to wonder whether he should say no because of the relationship that she has with Picard. And Picard tells him to stow that because he's always had faith in Riker and he continues to have faith in Riker. He doesn't think that she's, he's going to give her special treatment because of who she is, nor does he think that he's going to be more hard on her because of who she is. It's just, you know, do your work. We may very well come back to this in our uh, morals meeting and messages. All right. See that to me was actually one of the big one of the big things in this episode though how mature everyone was about this in a very different way. I mean like you're right Riker will sleep with whomever and Troy will sleep with far fewer people but she'll still sleep with someone else and still yeah. at the end of a given day it may be her and Riker we don't really know. Right. Uh Picard unlike in Tapestry when he was you know very much you know a 21 year old sort of you know betting whomever he could. <laughs> He actually says to to Darren in this episode, 
I don't enter into relationships lightly or something along those lines. Yeah. I love the fact that everybody was able to be really mature about it. Like when he was a jerk in the turbo lift, Mm -hmm. you know, and I understand why he was a jerk in the turbo lift, but then he goes back to her and he's like, so listen, I was a jerk in the turbo lift. Here's why. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she's able to say, eh, well, okay, <laughs> right. we'll work on it, which is actually kind of a neat thing, I think. Yeah. I did have one other thing to ask about. Yeah. What did you make of Picard telling Darren and her teams that they had to stay until the job was done? Huh. Was this like him just saying something to her because he may never be able to say anything to her again? Or was it him showing everybody that he's putting duty in front of his personal feelings? Or was it him telling himself there's a job to be done, and so I can't think about all this stuff. So I'm gonna I'm gonna yell to everybody, everybody do your job, because really what I'm gonna do is say Beamer out. Well, that's the work of a great actor, right? I mean, I think he played all three of those, and I I, I thought the same thing watching that. Like, that. There was something in his voice and and in the look on his face that was the care and the concern, the potential loss of her. Mm-hmm. But it was also giving the order. It, the last thing that he potentially might say to her i I don't it's a great moment and and played perfectly by patrick stewart of course kind of sounds redundant when we we say that (laughs) repetitive when we say that i think he hit all of those and and i I love that you spelled those out here because they're, they're all in that delivery Crusher can dance. Darren can make music. Picard definitely has a type. Well, I guess we were only halfway through the show when I said what I thought of this episode, but we have to do that thing we do where we say, hey, what'd you think of the episode? Because nobody's heard from you yet about that. Oh, they've heard from you throughout the episode, but they haven't heard whether or not you think this episode holds up, because that is the moment that we have come to, the part where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings, and try to figure out whether the episode does, in fact, hold up. The episode is lessons. The question, Mr. Champion, uh, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Here's what I like about the episode. It's character-driven. There is realism to the situation that they're in. The acting is fine. The acting is great. Um... I actually don't mind the fake out that Darren isn't dead with her away team, because in the moment, I actually thought it could have gone either way. It's played well, you know? Yeah. Um, But there's a downside to this episode. I actually I kind of feel bad saying it. I don't entirely feel the chemistry between Picard and Nella. Um, It feels like writers writing a relationship rather than it naturally evolving. There's very little humor in it. You know, it's characters who are so far beyond relatability. You wonder if they lay in bed at night and talk about arpeggios. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sort of comparing her to Vash or Vash um, that that she had this kind of spirit that was so from out of left field that you could see how Picard could be intrigued by her because there was something sort of different about her now it doesn't mean that darren is a bad character in fact she's a really good character some people in our audience will buy their relationship others may not i i'm just sort of lukewarm on it but again it doesn't take away from the story or the production or the acting 
there's just something about the relationship itself as it plays out that that feels a little weird to me. There's this line of criticism that Star Trek is all talk and no action, that it's so high-minded that it can come across as boring. I think this is a good episode, but it's one of the few times that kind of I agree with that line of criticism. <laughs> you know, hmm. that there is a lot of talk about the relationship that I, I don't necessarily feel it. Um, but it's still a well-made episode. As you said before, it is a well-produced episode. It is a well-acted episode. There are interesting ideas in this episode. Um, but I think that's the one thing that left me a little bit cold. And, and it's purely, as this segment of the show is, it is purely subjective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are people who will love this relationship and love this character and love these two characters in it. Um, but for me, eh, I, yeah, I can sort of take it or leave it given that aspect of it um but how about you i buy her so much more than vosh it's crazy oh interesting yeah i think vosh because vosh you never actually know if she likes picard Mm -hmm. honestly Mm -hmm. because she's always working some angle right Mm -hmm. and i can certainly see how picard would be intrigued but i can't see picard thinking that he could spend his life with her Mm -hmm. vosh is kind of a well, I would actually leave Vosh out. I intentionally left Vosh out because it seemed to me that there were two two things that we could really look at here with Picard. Um, in The Perfect Mate, the one with the woman who was sort of born and bred to imprint on somebody to, to be the perfect mate, yeah. the one with Femke, Femke Jansen. Femke Jansen, yeah. In that one, we see Picard in love, right? Because yeah. he can't not be in love with her because that is literally what she has been bred for. That is her entire purpose. And men automatically fall under her sway, like something from the X-Men or something. So in that episode, we saw him in love. In this episode, I feel like we see him fall in love. And I bought it. I bought I bought it happening like like he goes in there ready to be all Captain A and she treats him all, you know, man E. I don't want to say manly right. because that's got a different connotation to it. But she doesn't treat him like she doesn't treat him like a subordinate. She treats him like a woman who you know is interesting and who finds him interesting as well. And I felt like we watched him go through that whole process. In fact, I was surprised how well that worked in such a short period of time. Used to be, you met the girl in Act One on TOS, and you knew that, um, that Kirk was going to be in love with her. Why? Because she's the girl in Act One of TOS. Right. Yeah. And I really sort of I I felt this kind of evolve, I think, as a romance and an examination of the Picard character. I think this episode works, Um, except for that painting on the Jeffries tube. Honestly, I have a hard time finding fault (laughs) with this episode. I mean, we said last week in uh, Starship Mine that the action on the Enterprise sort of got us past the inaction or the stupidity that happened down on the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree with you. This episode is slow, but I don't really feel like. There are many wasted moments, if any wasted moments, in it. Yeah. I feel like most everything that happens serves a purpose. So, I mean, if we're going to be cool with the episodes that don't do a lot to address the human condition, that are diehard on the Enterprise, then, you know, I think we then we kind of have to be okay with the love story ones as well. And for that, I think this is wonderful. I think it's a great love story, honestly. If you're looking for the best that Star Trek can be, it's not that. I mean, for that, you want half a life or the drum head or the measure of a man or the enemy within or the Corbomite maneuver or maybe even the magics of Magus, too. I mean, there are other things that really address higher philosophical ideas. But, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I just, this, this seemed like yet another side of Captain Picard. Um, and if that's what Star Trek is going to turn into, which over the past season and a half, it sort of seems like is what Star Trek is turning into at least half the time, um, then I think it's a great examination of that. Yeah, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. The, the the things that you point out that you love about this episode are the things that I think are great about this episode. The 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 Picard is wonderful, and I love the exploration of his personal life. Mm-hmm. There was other stuff that maybe I wasn't captured by <laughs> in this. One. Okay, but but yeah, I'm I'm firmly on the side of giving some sort of you know deep character facets to these people that we know we would have never gotten a story like this with kirk <laughs> you know ever right. like like you point out you know so um i i do appreciate that but in an episode like this where it's not save the whales uh what what uh what are the messages then i think we sort of addressed this a little bit earlier but i kind of have to go back and ask again is this episode saying that nobody can have it all or is this episode saying that two people who are equally driven by their careers can't have it all? Or is this episode not unlike Starship Mine, a.k.a. Die Hard in Space or Die Hard on the Enterprise, <laughs> and just trying to tell a compelling story and not trying to deliver a message? You could say that it's just saying that this captain can't have it all. This captain can't have the uh, the, the the life that he may want um and he obviously is in love with her and wants to be with her. Um, but could you extrapolate that out and say, yeah, two driven people who are at the top of their game and in these high positions can't necessarily make it work in a professional environment like that? I, Yeah, that that's, that's hard to say. If yeah. that's the message, I hate it. Mm, sure, sure, as do I. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I don't, and I don't think, I definitely don't think that was the message they were trying to deliver. I mean, again, then you come back to the whole problem of, of episodic television, though, right? I mean, you can't make the case that it can work because then suddenly we have to have Nella Darren as a regular on the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, yeah. really, what you have to do is is write up the um, write up the Picard and Crusher relationship if you're going to explore that in this way, or somebody else who's on the ship that suddenly introduces a love interest that's going to be around for a few episodes, which kind of goes back to the thing that we had talked about with, um, with Roe and Riker, like mm-hmm. have they, you know, should they have actually explored a tiny bit more what was going on with those two characters? She's actually there to explore that, except that really does change the timbre of the show again, if it's going to be all about love in space, yeah. moonlighting in space. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, no. It would be moonlighting in space, John. Oh, no. It would be moonlighting in space. What about you? Messages as far as you're concerned. Yeah, you, you know, I, it's sort of going back to what you just said, office relationships are hard. But <laughs> but if you're adults, you can make it work sometimes unless you're the captain of a starship. I mean, that that's kind of the, <laughs> that's the, the sad part of this is that, yeah, if we were to extrapolate, then hmm. Yeah, that that might be a problem. And, and there's a thing in here. So I, I mentioned in the last segment, it, it's that scene that is teased with um with Nella coming onto the bridge and then catching Riker in the in the corridor and then Riker going to Picard and then of course Picard up until this point he's talked to Beverly he's talked to Deanna and, and that's that perception is everything. Hmm. This stuff can be talked about and and he does try to uh you know 
prep himself by talking to to Deanna, even though Deanna assures him like, oh, everybody's fine with it. They're happy because you're happy, etc. Well, sure, but there still may be this lingering perception that there is special treatment or that she has special access or, or whatever the case may be. So that still has to be addressed, even if people are happy that the captain has a girlfriend. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's truth to that. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about all kinds of stuff that Roddenberry is into, including... What? The Roddenberry Podcast Network? Huh? What's that? Roddenberry.com is the place to find out. Uh, shout out to Women at Warp and Priority One. Hey, would you like to help support this show? There's a place to do that. Patreon.com slash Mission Log for all your supporting Mission Log needs. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week... The Chase. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Were they really doing an experiment in stellar cartography? It looked like they were holding a seance. Am I right? And transmission. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.